the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, flags flying, stars crossing, worlds colliding, science fiction themed songs and magic, both hard and elvish, plus part 22 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. We have a special Labor Day weekend podcast for you featuring Wynne Spencer. Wynne joins us to discuss her new book, Wood Sprites, which is book four in her Elf Home series. Wynne's worlds are really intricate, but she works in the world building so subtly that you don't notice how deeply you're becoming engrossed in her milieu. I really like her work. We'll talk to Wen about the magic of wood sprites, the characters, and much more. Also, we have some special music for you to take you through the Labor Day weekend and beyond. We have music by Gray Reinhardt and music by the Trouble Dolls coming up. And, of course, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pincho. But first, here's the news. The new hardcovers are available at booksellers everywhere on September 2nd. Yep, Tuesday after Labor Day, which we will henceforth call Bane Day. At least for the rest of the podcast. Out in hardcover is Wood Sprites by Wen Spencer. This is book four in the Elf Home series. Wen takes a different tack on this one, bringing us up to speed on what's been going on in the world outside Tinker's very laser-focused view of Elf Home Pittsburgh. As always with Wynne Spencer, it's an intricately crafted, multi-dimensional adventure, and there are some rather conniving yet adorable twins who are the main characters. We'll talk much more with Wynne about that shortly. Also out in September is The Savior by David Drake and yours truly, Tony Daniel. This is the sequel to The Heretic and is book 10 in the general series. The Savior can certainly be read as a standalone novel, but it also completes the story Dave and I began in The Heretic. In fact, you might not go wrong if you got them both and read them together as sort of a big old book. But you don't have to. You can just read The Savior by itself, and it will stand by itself. This is the story of Abel Dashian, who is trying to raise his world up from an interstellar ruin that's thrown it back to the level of ancient Egypt. He's up against an AI that's determined that uh, his world remains in stasis in order to protect humanity from the nasty consequences of progress. Abel is aided and abetted by the computer voices from the earlier General books and by the uploaded mind of General Raj Whitehall, from whom this series takes its name, of course. If you like gritty adventure, military science fiction, muskets, strong women characters who also kick butt, you'll enjoy this one. Wood Sprites and the Savior are available at booksellers everywhere. All right, since we are heading into a great Labor Day weekend at the moment, let's have some music to chillax by. we got a couple of artists on tap. We have Gray Reinhardt, whose music we've played many times on the podcast. 
We also have my old friends and sometime collaborators, the Trouble Dolls, a band that includes Maddie Karras and Sherry Leone, who are doing the music for our upcoming da 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 da, -da four-part audio drama miniseries based on an Eric Flint novella. Hey, much more on that soon. First of all, we'll complete the song we started the podcast with. Here's Teenage Gravity by the Trouble Dolls. That was the Trouble Dolls with Teenage Gravity. The Trouble Dolls music can be found at, wait for it, TroubleDolls.com. Get their album sticky there, too. Want to welcome Wynn Spencer to the podcast. Hi, Wynn. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me. Wynn Spencer is the creator of the contemporary fantasy science fiction hybrid, I guess, the Elf Home series. She's the author of science fiction novel Endless Blue. And Tinker, the first novel in the Elf Home saga, garnered a Joseph W. Campbell Award for Win and a Sapphire Award for Best Science Fiction Romance. She's also the author of contemporary fantasy novel Eight Million Gods, which is a great book, by the way, and uh, out in mass market right now. The Elf Home series includes Tinker, Wolf Who Rules, Elf Home, and latest entry Wood Sprites, which is now out in hardcover at booksellers everywhere. 
When you've taken a different tack on wood sprites, we start well outside of magical Pittsburgh, uh, as where we are in the other books. It, we're in Astoria, Queens in New York City. What led you to dive into the story here in the mundane world? Well, uh, Tinker's a wonderful character, but she tends to be laser-focused on what's happening to her and only what's interesting to her. And um, she's fairly um, ignorant of the big world, and she's learning to see the big world. Um, But it means that the first one or two books, I've missed out what was happening on Earth. And then communication got cut off from Pittsburgh to Earth, and so I I lost the whole arc there of what's happening. And and to me, the story is much more than just Elf Home and the Elves. It's the human relationship to this completely alien world, and I felt like I was missing half the equation on the series. So um, since I had cut the connection between the two worlds, I really needed a character on Earth to carry the storyline. And I knew it was going to be kind of risky because, you know, what the people really are reading a fantasy for is magic and elves and everything. So um, I, I had to be sure that those elements are front and center in the story. Um, so while it is on Earth, there's elves and magic and such. So, uh, But where are we in the, um, in the Elf Home series timeline in the book? Is this after... Elf home, or is it? Well, um, basically, um, Tinker starts a week before Midsummer's Eve in June, and Elf Home ends the first week of September. So the three books run from June to September. And I decided to do, um, to get the reactions of Earth to all these events, um, I decided to start before June. So the book really starts, Wood Sprites actually starts in May, um, or maybe even, even earlier than that. Um, but they overlap all the other books. Um, not something I would recommend to anybody ever try to write. Uh, but um, had a lot to keep in mind at one time. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> um, where people are, what's happening... A lot of cross-referencing, reading what I had set up. Um, But I didn't really want to just simply recap um, the events of the other books. So the twins had to have their own compelling story. It's just their life interweaves with what was going on with Tinker. Well, our main characters are uh, nine-year-old twins. They're wonderful protagonists named Jillian and Louise Mayer, or Meyer. Uh, what can you tell us about the girls, and did I get the, the names right in pronunciation? <laughs> I actually never pronounce my characters' names out loud, so uh, when people ask me how it's pronounced, like, um, I guess. Um, I, I, I always thought it was Mayer. Um, the twins are very smart, but they're in, in that kind of geeky, antisocial way. Uh, they understand rocket science, but they don't really get their classmates. They don't understand what makes them tick. And because of that, they're both really shy. And um, Jillian wants to be a script writer, an actress, and a director. Um, her get- goal is to be the youngest director ever to win an Oscar. 
Uh, Louise loves animals, and she would like to be an animal trainer or make nature films like the Meerkat TV show by the BBC. Um, They're really working hard towards this goal by making videos that they post online. They're incredibly creative kids, even if they aren't socially adept when the book starts. Uh Mm Mm-hmm. The main viewpoint character is Louise. Uh, Jillian's only occasionally separated from her, but she's sort of the reader or writer viewpoint character that whose head we're inside. Well, I'd consider giving them both point of views, but as you said, they're always together. And when you're doing a point of view, you want to have the character have their own storyline. And then it ends up being when they're in this together you're 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 trying to figure out who gets the scene and why they get that scene um it has to be very important to their storyline um for them to have the scene and it's one of the reasons why when you do read books the characters go off and have totally different lives and then come together now and then um and i thought since they're going to be together so much, because as twin nine-year-olds, they don't have a whole lot of choices um, day-to-day as to where they go. They're in class together. Um, They have to be in class together, and they have to commute together, and they have to eat lunch together and dinner together. So I decided just not to have that hurdle um, by just taking one point of view. Um, but it also, it, it puts into question whether or not the non-point of view character survives. So it, it kind of builds in a little bit more worry about their survival. So what kind of experience did you draw on to create these twins? My own sister's uh, 18 months older than I am, and... She was always on the small size, so we were always the same size, and people thought we were twins. And I built a lot on that relationship I had with my sister um, for Louise. Um, The idea that, you know, she's the pretty one. She's the one everybody likes, everybody pays attention to. And growing up, I hadn't realized that 18 months is actually a huge difference. So she was always you know, developmentally ahead of me. And so I always thought she was smarter than I was and, you know, faster and stronger and all that. But, you know, it was an age difference there that I wasn't aware of. So I used that a lot with Louise um, when I was writing her. She shares everything with Jillian except her own self-doubt. Yeah. Well, the twins are smart, but their intelligence is within bounds of what a very gifted child might be able to accomplish. Although they do work quadratic equations, much to the chagrin of some of their teachers. Mm-hmm. Mostly what they do is make this video project. What is this about, this YouTube channel they've created? Um, well, basically, um, my household has gone very My Little pony and if you're into that kind of thing, you realize there's a huge amount of fan-generated stuff, which is at a very professional level. And it just inspired me that if, if you took somebody, who, I wanted them to have a lot of knowledge about Elf Home 
and particularly I wanted them to be fluent in Elvish. And it was hard for me to justify them to have, you know, that kind of knowledge base without a good reason. And I decided what it was is that they decided to do these videos and they went whole hog wild in only the way that geeks can. And, um, of course, did massive research so that they could get all the details right. And then they produced these um, videos where, you know, it's animated and they have the entire orchestra um, soundtrack and everything. And it's a parody on the court life of the elves uh, and how humans interact with them. That's what their videos become about. Mm -hmm. So did you watch some of these... uh... My Little Pony and My Little uh, Littlest Pet Shop videos, because some of them are really bizarre. My 10-year-old is fascinated by them, and she's even made some. Yeah. Um, oh, God, yes. And uh, not because I wanted to. <laughs> um, but they're actually very good. Um, one of them is, instead of friendship is magic, um, it's witchcraft is magic. And it basically takes the supposition that the ponies are worshipping Cthulhu <laughs> and just really twist the whole storyline. And it's mostly fan animated with some clips from the show. But it's interwoven so well, you can't tell what's been animated by the fans and what was from the show. And, you know voice actors and everything that are just professional level quality. You do a good job of communicating that with uh, Luis and Jillian. It really comes across because people don't know that they're kids. They assume they're adults. Oh, I, I tend not to use the Internet the way other people do. So I tend to be oblivious to a lot of what's going on on the net where people are like, well, have you been to Goodreads? Um, I, I'm aware it exists, but I don't like spend a whole lot of time on it. And there's a lot of things that my husband does this. Well, that's a meme. And I'm like, it is like, I've never been Rick rolled. I know what it is because my husband has shown it to me. Um, but you know, it was five years after the phenomena that I actually found out about it. And, and You'll be dumping an ice bucket on your head five years from now. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, it's that kind of level. I'm unaware of what's going on. So I gave the twins that so that they they don't really realize how famous they are. But they have gone super viral. Well, after Louise and Jillian discover that their parents aren't their natural parents, which they do in true genius kid fashion at the start of the book. It's a great opening chapter. They begin to look for their origins. They make several startling discoveries. The first is about their own ancestry. It stretched back to France and to a very peculiar ancestor. Can you give us a hint of what this portends? Well, uh, that's a lot of that is canon. Um, I set up in the first book that um, Tinker has a book of spells, uh, the Kodaks, and 
And the second book, she finds out that the Kodaks is actually Stone Clan, where um, Windwolf is the Wind Clan. And the third book, um, the Stone Clan, starts showing up and making claims on Tinker and Oil Can. And so the future is going to be kind of complicated by the fact that there's going to be these children who are Stone Clan, and the Stone Clan aren't necessarily friendly with everybody else in the book. So there's this big political ramifications of the twins and their siblings. Well, they also discover something else, that they are not alone. There may be siblings, and they run into the major problem that they're trying to solve throughout the book, Wood Sprites. Uh, can you tell us a bit about the embryos and the consequences of the twins' discovery? I haven't, uh, it's a really wonderful character motivation that uh, I haven't seen before. Well, I had set up in the very first book that Tinker was um, created by in vitro fertilization using the sperm of her father, who had been dead for a couple of years. And um, it turns out that I didn't realize it, but I had been talking to a friend uh, after writing Elf Home, and she had gone through in vitro fertilization, and she had twin boys. But when that happens, they actually make more um, embryos than they actually use, and they store part of that, uh, part of the creation. So uh, she had actually had 17 embryos created, and she used three of them. Um, she had twin boys. She had been carrying twi triplets and lost one. And she told me that years after she had the twins, uh, she got a call from the clinic wanting to know what to do with the frozen embryos. And since she lost the little girl when she was carrying her boys, she considered having a child that would be twin to their her um, already existing children. And um, she decided not to, so she donated the embryos. And um, she knows at least one child was born from the donated material. So she, there's a full sister to her twin somewhere out there in the world um, that she has no knowledge of other than it was a girl child. And a few days after I uh, had this discussion with her, I actually dreamed about Louise trying to save her baby siblings. And I woke up realizing, oh my God, Tinker has siblings because the in vitro fertilization automatically creates more material than you actually use. And so I started trying to think of what Louise would be like. And that's when I decided to make her a twin because I thought you wouldn't have to have a really close relationship with an existing sibling to try to move heaven and earth to save another sibling. And I also wanted to make her young because the idea of getting these frozen embryos is so impractical that it only needs that kind of naive innocence of a child of, we just have to do this and it'll be fine. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of 
created yeah. my start point. Well, it's cool to think about a twin that is 10 years, 20 years younger than another twin and what the family implications of that will be. Yeah, it's going to be interesting when I bring them all together. Um, well, at one point you write, uh, you have one of your characters say, I believe it's Louise, yes, but this isn't driving across the river to New Jersey. This is going to another planet, Elf Home, the world of the elves, different stars, different moons. Well, looks the same, but it's not the same moon. Totally different sun, not our world. So what world is this, Elf Home, Pittsburgh? Um, can you give us a, a bit of an overview of how this wonderfully intricate world you've built fits together? Well, yeah. Um, basically, I've set up... <laughs> yeah, in a hundred words less. <laughs> Basically, I set up that there's four worlds that are known, um, and they're kind of like pearls on a string, where they're all linked together, but they're all individual, and they're mirrored geologically, so that they look on the surface to be the same. Um and they're in the same orbit around a sun. But they're all different universes. So our sun and moon is not the sun and moon of Elfholm. They have their own. Um, so I guess another way of thinking of it is if they're like sheets of paper, which each paper having a photograph of a, sun, a planet with a moon and a sun, um, they all look the same but they're all separate. And um, while geologically... So brought that brought, uh, brought uh, Pittsburgh and, and Elf home together? Well, I had set up that at one point there was all these passages through caves where a magic residence had been set up between the planets so that you could actually travel like in wormhole to the other planets. Um, but there was this big political war, and those were destroyed by various parties. Um, but the memory of them existed um, so that Tinker's father actually took the book of magic that he had um, inherited from his family, that Tinker also has a copy of, and decided to use technological means to recreate it. But he also was aware that there was this war and there was conflict and that this could be dangerous. So he set it up in space, thinking that he could, with the distance of space, that he could control the access to this. So it was a great big gate floating in orbit that you're supposed to put spaceships through, and they would jump between the universes. Um, but it didn't work right. And how it didn't work right was it projected a field of magic down onto the planet and basically kidnapped Pittsburgh off the face of Earth and put it on Elf Home. Um, at first, they were really mystified as to what had happened because they couldn't figure out the connection between the gate 
and um, Pittsburgh disappearing. But once they figured it out, they're like, cool, a whole nother planet. Um, we've got to take advantage of this. Um, it has intelligent species and everything. We've got to do this. So um, they couldn't figure out how to change the gate. So they decided just, oh, what the hell? Um, we would just turn it on and off. And when it's off, Pittsburgh's on Earth, and it's called shutdown. But when it's on, which is startup, it's on Elf Home. So they started up this cycle that they would turn it off and turn it on and turn it off and turn it on. And they, were, and they would basically trade back and forth between Earth and Elf Home. And Elf Home is a dangerous place for humans. You wrote that wonderful story last year, uh, Pittsburgh Backyard and Garden, that we had on the Bain.com page. This is a place that's dangerous for humans. The flora itself will get you, and the fauna is pretty dangerous, too. Well, Matt, it doesn't affect geological features, but it affects living matter. So the plants and animals and people all evolve differently, and magic tends to supercharge plants and animals. So while Earth has plants that move and trap food, like you know, the Venus fly trap, um, they're tiny and they go after little flies, but on Elf Home, the magic just ramps that up to extreme. So the plants are like trees walking and they eat people. So yeah, they tend, Elf Home is much more dangerous than Earth. And it has elves. Yeah, it has elves. And, and elves are very much like humans, but they've been supercharged by magic so that they're immortal and they heal faster and they're taller and they're stronger. So um, we're a little bit intimidated by them. Well, back on Earth, while Luis and Jillian are going about these adventures, they also have school. And we have a, a rather delightful subplot of the story that takes place there. Jillian and Luis have had trouble fitting in before, but now they are going to give it a try by putting on a play. But it's a play done the twin special way. Like the part of this is kind of coming out of my own childhood. The point in my life where I could shine was in fourth grade, where I put on a play, uh, wrote a play, and put it on. Um, I ended up being the director. But for the twins... Uh, I decided what it was is that Jillian has this desire to be an actress and a director and, you know, famous. And she's kind of blocked by the fact that she's short and she's dark and she just, she isn't, you know, the princess material. And she keeps on losing the lead to this tall, beautiful, blonde girl who really knows how to, how to work people. And Jillian ends up being the villain, and she really hates this. So they decide to be preemptive and get the boys on the class on their side because it's a class vote as to what play they put on. Um, but this forces them to actually talk to their classmates and make friends, and it takes them out of their comfort zone. And, um, and then once they start into the play, they're doing Peter Pan, um, they realize they, this gives them excuse to have 
a cover-up story for everything they're doing. So it's, no, we, we have to go to school on Saturdays because of the play. We have to stay late at school because of the play. We're going to make this um, because we're going to use it in the play. So, um, And then they, of course, embellish Peter Pan to extreme. Now, in addition to those rather bad schoolgirls, and there's some others that they make friends with over the course of the book as well, we have some truly evil villains. Um, these threaten Elf Home as well as, as Earth. How can elves in Pittsburgh be threatened? I mean, they're immortal and timeless and such, right? Yeah. Well, I've set up that why they're immortal was that the originally they were a, a nomadic tribe society, and then one tribe learned how to use magic to do bioengineering. And they were the skin clans, and they quickly... Um, figured out how to do things like make animals uh, weapons of war. And the walking trees is actually a result of their tinkering. And they used these to enslave all the other tribes um, on the planet. And then they started messing around with the basic structure of the race. And they bioengineered a lot of things into the elves, one of which is the immortality. And once they had figured out the immortality, they started doing some really awful um, genetic um, experiments with their slaves. And at that point, uh, the slaves revolted. And all the elves that humans know are the... um, basically the slaves and the master race um the skin clan as they were called fled from the planet and used the caves um pathways to get to earth and some of the other planets that are connected so they they were scattered but they still were immortal and they still had knowledge of bioengineering, and they basically fit in with the humans in wherever they happened to be and started plotting how they could come back and take over their planet. But they had the big problem of their planet is now super weaponized against them because in the course of the rebellion, the slaves picked up the spell stones, which let the um, the noble noble cast cast very powerful spells um, just with by moving their hands and saying words. They can call down lightning storms and fire strikes and and put up impenetrable shields and it makes them nearly invincible. So the skin clan have been taking immor- their immortality and coming up with a plan to take back their planet. So the elven magic that the twins are trying to understand and maybe wield throughout the book, how does it work? What are the rules? Anybody can cast magic. Um, Magic is kind of like circuit boards um, in which you can draw a certain design um, with metal 
some kind of metal ink. Um, Tinker uses um, crayons that have um, metal filings melted into the wax. Um, and she also uses a um, metal ink, which is buckyballs with metal in them. Um, and uh, she... Um, <laughs> it's very complex trying to, to break this down. Uh, so basically anybody who draws the design can actually cast a spell. And the twins actually get the spell book, a copy of the spell book, and start casting spells by printing them on printers um, and then casting them using generators they create, magic generators they create. But the noble cast, the Damana, um, they have something linked into their genetic code that lets them be kind of like telephones um, in that way out there someplace is a huge rock that has a spell embedded on it. And basically what the noble cast person does is call in and say, send me a lightning strike. And the magic jumps to them and then they can direct it. Um, and the the stones are sitting on top of this massive pool of magic, so they have a huge amount of power to pull from <laughs> instead of just the ambient level of magic where the caster happens to be standing. So it's kind of like being able to call in a nuclear strike. So are these the NACTA that we see in the book? Oh, the spell stones are the spell stones, but anything okay. you draw a spell on can become magical. And the NACTA basically have a spell inscribed on them. And what the spell does is it stops time for the thing that's inside the NACTA. So it looks like this giant ostrich egg, or favage egg, because it actually has hinges on it. And the spell for time stop is inscribed on the outside. And when it's closed up and sealed by magic, it stops time until the seal's broken. So you put something in it, and you seal it, and basically it kind of moves the object to when the um, item's opened. So what about Earth? Earth elf home politics get a little complicated, given that elf home doesn't always exist in our universe. Um, and on Earth there's this quarantine zone. Why have humans set this up? Well, um, the United States wasn't very happy about losing one of its major cities and having this giant hole in the middle of it. Um, and when it happened, first started happening, there was almost a war over it. Um, but they managed to come up with a, um, a way around everything, the, the political strife, by having the Chinese, who were the ones who built the space, um, gate in orbit, basically paying for the damages 
of losing an entire um, city. And then they have the United States also has the benefit of you have all the riches of another world funneled through it. Um, but it also has the dangers of, well, it's got these walking trees and it's got these dinosaurs and um, it's got these giant wolves. Um, there's a lot of dangerous things in it. So they've come up with a mile-wide quarantine zone where it's basically a dead man's land um, with Berlin Wall kind of fortifications um, on the very edge so that you can't easily get in or out. Um, get in because the elves have set up um, limits as to who gets to immigrate. They don't want the riffraff of humanity cluttering up their planet. And they've been to Earth in their past, so they know that, that humans have this tendency of moving into an area with a lesser developed native life and just railroading over um, the native and taking over the land. So they're very on guard from that. So they're like, we want to limit your numbers coming in and we want only your good people. We don't want the crazy people and the criminals and, you know, such. So they have, the treaty has set up only a certain number of people can come in. So that's what the quarantine zone is. It's to keep elf home dangerous stuff from coming out. And then the huge numbers, the billions of humans who see a, a nearly empty planet as ripe for the pickings to come in. There's another wonderful character in the book, one that I particularly enjoyed, um, which is Tesla, who's sort of the robo-nanny dog of the girls. He was meant to be a kind of nanny, but the girls have turned the tables on their parents with that. Uh, tell us about Tesla. Well, Tesla is starts out as a nanny bot. Um, basically, the girls commute from the Queens into Manhattan area because they have a scholarship at this very prestigious gifted school and uh, it's New York City so um, the parents are nervous about them commuting back and forth so they get this giant dog it's actually an American Akita um, it's the size of a St. Bernard but um, it looks more like a Spitz and um, it, it, it has all this advanced technology on it so that it's got spy cameras and recording materials and um, GPS, and you even can buy these special attachment feet so that it can walk on walls, you know, gecko feet. Um, and the girls are kind of horrified by this because they're just starting into this whole, we're going to run around and do all this illegal and dangerous stuff to try to uh, save our siblings. So they're not very happy about this. So they, they come with ways to get around it. Um, but cramps then, their style. yeah, it really cramps their well, style. So they, what about the uh, the voice? Um, where does that the uh, Christopher Robin voice? 
Yeah. Well, it's the impossible dog. Not, not yeah, to the play dog in your head talks. once you hear they're doing that. Yes, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> well, the dog can talk you know, and answer questions. And answer, you can call it on a phone and ask it questions. So the parents can actually call it and go, where are you? And the dog can go, I'm at at this museum it's, you know, after hours and we're stealing something. Um, and so it, American Akitas are actually um, an American version of a Japanese dog. So when they first get it, and the pre-programmed language, Voice for it is Konnichiwa, what do you tell us? You know, the very deep down uh, male voice, and they're like, oh, that sucks. Uh, so they're cycling, cycle through the voices, and they come upon the Welsh corgi voice, actually sounds like Christopher Robert. So they set that as the default voice. Um, but later on, they make a mistake, and the dog develops a personality, and it's a very young boy personality. So the Christopher Robin voice actually works very well for it. And he's very confused about life. And, of course, he comes aware just as the twins are doing insane, crazy things. Um, so he's not very aware what's normal, and then he has to deal with this craziness on top of it yeah he's really a great character and uh, a sort of great outside in viewpoint for uh, the craziness that these twins are uh, up to <laughs> why are we doing this really good so yeah so what are you working on now when um i'm trying to finish the short story for you um, and uh, I've got a steampunk book that I've um, I have under contract, and uh, it's set in the 1870s, and it has lots and lots of cool things, and I haven't quite figured out how to talk about it yet um, because it has zombies and angels and dragons and airships and pirates and. Um, it's a romp, um, and I haven't quite figured out how to explain it. <laughs> I was supposed to have it done this month, and that didn't happen. So, uh, and I also have um, a project, um, Project Elf Home, which is an anthology that I'm working on, which will have Pittsburgh Backyard and Garden and all the other short stories that I've done, and then follow-up short stories for several of them. Um, there will be a sequel to Pittsburgh Backyard and Garden um, called uh, Chase by Monsters. And Peace Offering with Olivia uh, will be, have a sequel. And uh, I have little bits from Storm Song and Pony and Lane. Uh, so... Uh, a lot of fun things. All it's all elf home stories. Well, the book is Wood Sprites by Wen Spencer. It's a wonderful and intricate tapestry of an adventure with some characters who are really fun to follow along. Wood Sprites is now at booksellers everywhere. 
Wen, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Tony. I really enjoyed it. Here is Steampunk Pirates, a song by Bain Associate Editor, science fiction author, and filker of filk songs, Gray Reinhardt. We played this one on the podcast before, but its epic and anthemic nature really fits in with a Labor Day theme. So play it again, Gray. Some hearties sail the high seas And cowboys ride the plains But I sail the skies with gold in my eyes And ride like thunder on the winds of change Spread the canvas port and starboard Full sail while we build the steam Hold steady with the wind now Sharpen up your eyes There's battle in the offing And there's treasure in the skies Tonight the airship pirates Are gonna prowl among the clouds With cannon at the ready On the lookout for a prize Taste the spray of grease and oil Hiss of steam assaults your ears Fit your goggles tight Keep your daggers bright Charlie Rogers flying past the turning gears Spread the canvas port and starboard Full sail while we build the steam Hold steady with the wind now Sharpen up your eyes There's battle in the offing And there's treasure in the skies Tonight the airship pirates Are gonna prowl among the clouds With cannon at the ready On the lookout for a prize Fortune's hoard tonight. There's glory to be won. I'll forever climb the thermals. Sails trimmed, racing round the clouds. Ride the winds of fate. With the fortune that I've made Till my last pennies Finally hold my eyelids down Spread the canvas port and starboard Full sail while we build the steam Hold steady with the wind now Sharpen up your eyes There's battle in the 
offing and there's treasure in the skies Tonight the airship pirates are gonna prowl among the clouds With cannon at the ready on the lookout for a prize A prize A prize That was Gray Reinhardt's Steampunk Pirates off his album Truth, Lies, and Make Believe, which can be found via his website, graymanwrites.com. And now here is part 22 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free. Or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's what's gone before. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents. And each generation more or so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their power for good, but some do not. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy, the type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake's good at it. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magic-based apocalypse. They are known as the Grimnor Knights. If the Grimnor are to be believed, the evil forces of magic introduced into the world have reached a peak and the apocalyptic finale of humanity may be about to begin. Here is Bronson Pinchot with part 22 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Maddie watched the station out the private train car window, scowling. The hair on his arms had just stood up. What is it? Yutaka asked, suspicious. I don't know. Then he saw the broad-shouldered fellow standing at the end of the ramp next to a short, dumpy man in glasses. It can't be, he muttered, placing one hand on the warm glass. Well, I'll be damned. Jake! Yutaka stood up and moved to the window, trying to figure out what was going on. Trouble? You have no idea. Maddie muttered. There was no way it was a coincidence, damn Lenny Torrio forever talking to him to begin with. If he hadn't already killed Torrio, he'd kill him again and make it hurt more this time. Maddie despised weakness and worshipped strength. But Jake was something different, one of the strong who felt the need to protect the weak, and that made him dangerous. Summon a demon, have it follow the big man. Mar Pacifica, California. They ate breakfast in what Francis called the nice dining room. Faye thought that it was a little ridiculous to have a chandelier that obviously cost more than a grandpa's farm, but she did have to admit that it was very sparkly. 
The food consisted of a bunch of items that she'd never seen before with names that sounded vaguely European. General Pershing was in his room. Apparently, he no longer ever left his bed. Not that it mattered, since the healer, Jane, said that his stomach couldn't handle solid food anyway. Other than that, everyone else that she'd met so far was gathered around one end of the enormous table, and there were enough seats remaining for another twenty people. My father liked to entertain, Francis explained when he saw her looking down the empty expanse. We used to have some grand parties here when I was a child. More marmalade? She didn't know what that was, nor did she know what to do with all of the extra forks and spoons on each side of her plate, and it was really odd that servants kept bringing more plates when she could just as easily serve herself. Breakfast at the Vieiras had consisted of one big pot of something dropped in the middle of the table, and all the milk they could drink, of course, and then everybody helped themselves until they were stuffed. Breakfast in her old life had happened sporadically. Actually, all the other meals had been kind of like that, too. She'd spent a lot of time hungry. Most of the others had the same gold and black ring. Francis had asked her not to wear hers yet. Apparently, there was some sort of oath you were supposed to take before you could wear one. She noticed that Delilah didn't have one either. Any word yet from Garrett? Lance asked. His train should be arriving in Ogden now, Browning said. My hometown, actually. I do miss it. I'd love to see it again before I die. Why can't you visit? Fay asked. The old man paused, muffin halfway to his mouth. Well, my dear, as far as the world is concerned, I died of a heart attack a few years ago while in Belgium. If our enemies knew that I was grim noir, they would go after my family. That is how they operate. That is a sad byproduct of our mission. Now I use my knowledge to help protect those in need of our aid. Faye scowled. His name sounded familiar from the radio. You're famous, aren't you? Lance grunted a laugh. Half the world's guns have his name on the patent, except mine because John Moses never bothered to make a revolver. I'm a simple inventor, Browning answered modestly. I designed a few firearms, nothing important. Semi-auto's jam, Lance muttered, obviously trying to get a rise out of him. Mine don't, the older man responded with a gentle smile. Faye decided she liked Mr. Browning. He seemed like a very nice man. I'll drink to that, my deceased friend. Lance raised his glass. It seemed a little early to Faye to be drinking that much whiskey, but the other seemed used to Lance. According to the papers, I died in a sudden fire, but I suppose by definition fire is sudden if it kills you. What were you before? Big game hunter, adventurer, automobile racing driver, explorer. Lance paused to think. Cow puncher, spend a year as a coal miner, let's see. Come from a long line of cowboys, great-great-grandpa was a pirate. That sounded far-fetched to Faye, but then again, when they'd first met, Lance had been a talking squirrel. She was willing to go with it. Faye turned to the remaining three. Jane was reading a book again and apparently wasn't even listening to the conversation. She always seemed to be reading something. Delilah hadn't spoken yet either. She was sullenly stabbing at her food with a fork. Francis looked up. Well, if we're telling our stories, I'm still alive, 
Everybody knows I've got magic, but they don't realize how much. But most folks think I'm sort of a fop that gets by on his family name and attends lots of parties. I play it dumb. Really? Lance raised one bushy eyebrow. However do you pull that off? I... Francis frowned. Never mind. Faye glanced at Delilah. The dark-haired lady was about the prettiest woman she'd ever seen. I bet you were a movie star. Delilah started to laugh. Oh, come on. Wait, you're serious? Yes, Faye said. You're very beautiful. Delilah just stared, surprised, green eyes blinking rapidly. Why, yes. Yes, I am. And yeah, that's paid a few bills for me, but probably not in the way you're thinking, little girl. Mr. Browning coughed politely. Oh, don't get all huffy, Moses, Delilah said coldly. I won't talk about it in polite company. She stood up and tossed the napkin on her plate. I'm not hungry. She walked from the room without another word. What did I say? Faye asked. Ms. Jones has had a difficult life, Browning said. Her father was one of us once. I'm afraid that sometimes the society does what it thinks is best in the big picture, but it misses the suffering of the individual. Never mind. I apologize. Ah, oh, don't worry, Lance said. John here is our moral compass, but he can be a little disapproving of certain vices. He downed the rest of his whiskey in one gulp. Ah, that's good stuff. I'll grab Delilah and we'll have a little talk with the prisoner. Socking him in the head will cheer her up. Lance left as well. Jane spoke without looking up from her book. I've been Grimoire my whole life, and my parents and my grandparents before that. They were some of the first founders. I was born into this. I don't have to pretend to be dead because I've never gotten to really be alive. She turned the page. You have to actually exist first, you know? That's, that's kind of sad, Faye said. Eh, Jane shrugged. You get used to it. This is all I've ever done, so I can't complain. I'm a mender, after all. That's my God-given gift, and I've got no shortage of injured people this way. My friends have left things behind to do this. I never had to. And even if I did, I'd still do it anyway. I'm just glad that I never had to make that choice. Faye understood. I don't really have anything either. I guess if my grandpa was still alive, I'd still be there with him, happy. Now? I think it's awful nice of you folks to let me stay here for a spell. Faye didn't know what she was going to do next. She was still figuring out what had happened as secret societies and Tesla superweapons were a bit over her head. But General Pershing had said that she was welcome to stay with them as long as she wanted. Leaving things behind is tough. Jane placed a bookmark to hold her page, then finally set her book down. You haven't met my boyfriend yet. That's how it was for him. He was a radio star, had his own show on the American Broadcasting Network and everything. Best voice in the world, people used to say. He read the news. He was half the voices on the detective shows. Everyone loved him, and then one day they didn't anymore. They hated him. What happened? People found out he had power. 
that he could influence people with his words, get inside their heads. It pretty much ran him out on a rail. It ruined his life. Jane sniffed and reopened her book. Poor Dan. Don't be hasty. Young Mr. Garrett turned out to be one of our finest operatives, Browning suggested as he rose. He would never have met you either, my dear, if he'd continued in the radio business, and I don't believe he would have it any other way. Jane blushed. Now, if you will excuse me, I do have some business to conduct. That was part 22 of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pincho. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, thanks to Gray Reinhardt, and to the Treble Dolls, as well as to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a magic mirror that sees into the ever-changing present and creates an exact visual twin of the person standing before it and a large wreath of flowers and fireworks born to her by Onis who are tired of being bad, for Wynne Spencer, author of the new Elf Home series novel, Wood Sprites. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. And for a big Labor Day Bane-free radio hour finale, here's another song by the Trouble Dolls. This one I wrote with them, or rather, I wrote a poem and Maddie and Sherry transformed it into a song. This one is available on iTunes at TroubledDolls.com, their website, and on their album Sticky. It's called Something Blue Amazed Me. Something Blue Amazed Me like corn on fire Something blue amazed me The clear day in Southern California Feel